If you want to convince skeptical readers or skeptical listeners that you really are trying to get at the truth and that you have something that's important to say, then concentrate on or look at solutions as a vital part of your coverage. Podcast Junkies, episode 144. Welcome back. I'm your host, Harry Duran. If you're new to the show, this is the one where we search out interesting voices in podcasting. We get them to kick back their heels and talk about their shows. And then at the same time, whatever else is on their mind or mine, maybe whatever I feel like asking. In case you missed last week's fantastic conversation, it was with El Martinez, host of Couple Money Podcast. This week, we have the pleasure of speaking with Richard Davies, host of How Do We Fix It? This is a conversation with someone who I met at a previous podcast movement, and I re-engaged or had another conversation with him at this year's, and we spoke at length after one of the the talks where we were both in, and I just knew that I uh, I wanted to have Richard on the show. I'm really fascinated by his show called How Do We Fix It? So we talked about what inspired him to take on podcasting in the first place, some of the shows he was listening to. He talks about what what his co-host Jim hasn't common with Neil deGrasse Tyson. They talk about the feedback they've received and how that's changed the direction of their show. Um, he actually talks about living in Hastings, New York, and Britain. So he's got a really interesting background. And we have some fun with some films and how they've portrayed news and journalism. So as you can see, it's really all over, all over the map, but it's so fascinating and so interesting. I mean, he's spent over 30 years at ABC News. So as you might imagine, there's, there's stories there. So good stuff. Don't forget, you can find full show notes at podcastjunkies.com slash 144. This episode is brought to you by Podbean. Podbean has been a fantastic support of the show. If you're looking to get started, they have plans uh, for unlimited podcast hosting that start at $9 per month. Uh, so head on over to podbean.com slash podcast junkies. And when you set up your account, if you use that link, just let me know, shoot me an email, harry at podcast junkies, and you'll get a half hour of coaching from me just to help you out with anything podcasting related. Stay tuned till the end of the episode where I reveal this week's retention hashtag. I want to see who's been playing along on Twitter. This is the piece where you place the hashtag that I have at the end of the episode in your tweets, and that makes you part of the Cool Kids group. So more on that after the episode. Enjoy my conversation with Richard. So Richard Davies, host of uh, How Do We Fix It? Thank you so much for joining us on Podcast Junkies. It's great to be here. Thank you for uh, having me. So for the benefit of the listener, we've run into each other at podcast conferences and most recently at Podcast Movement. Um, So I'm wondering if in the in the podcast world, if if that's something that you found to be a, an important part of your networking as you grow your show, the conferences. Yeah, I love podcast movement. One reason is because I think it's part rally and part trade show. There's so much passion and enthusiasm around podcasts at that event. So part of it's to just go and soak it up and enjoy the enthusiasm and the passion. Another part of it is to meet new people and also get reacquainted with other folks who I've met before. And then the third part is just to learn. There's so many different sessions on everything from monetizing your podcast to how to edit it, to how to make it sharper and clearer. And I was lucky enough this time to be on a panel where we uh, critiqued a couple of podcasts 
And that was a learning experience for me as well, because uh, the two podcasts we critiqued uh, on that panel was Tom Likas and Minion Fogarty, um, uh, uh, Grammar Girl. Yeah. And, uh, and their, their comments were just so right on. So that was, that was helpful to me. Yeah, uh, Minion's been on the, she helped kick off the season two of this show. So she was uh, episode 101. Uh, so she was, she was a, uh, really nice to have on. Um, yeah, she's so, terrific. So when you think about critiquing a show, and, and I imagine this is something that you, you know, you're probably thinking, well, what if they were critiquing my show? Like, what, what lens are you looking at it through? And I know you've, you know, you obviously have a, a lot of experience as a journalist working with ABC News. I'm wondering if you, if you take that into account when you're looking at um, how to, how to, how to review or, or how to critique a podcast. Yeah, sure. I'm a journalist, and I spent 30 years at ABC News, mostly with radio, as a correspondent on air covering breaking news and politics and business. So yeah, that's my background. But when I came to podcasting, I had to unlearn almost as much as I learned, because radio is not podcasting. It's a different medium. It's much more about being on the air at that moment because everybody's sort of tuning in and tuning out. So you always have to be, as it were, on the front page and have a certain amount of urgency in in your voice and what you're doing. So there's a great deal of discipline involved. You're usually speaking on script, whereas with a podcast, it's really different. Have you had colleagues who you've worked with, um, you know, be curious about what your podcasting journey so far and, and as you started to, to grow your show and have had more experience with your own show, have you had, you know, folks that you've worked with in, in the journalism, journalism space reach out to you and just, you know, pick your brain? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, both newspaper journalists and uh, radio people have been interested in, in what we're doing. And one of the things I've really learned from podcasting, and I'm sure you know this, Harry, is that it's the most intimate medium I know. That the way we listen to it is usually with with earbuds, which I have on right now, Um, just another voice in your ear. And the other thing that I think is so unique and interesting about podcasts is that nearly everyone starts at the beginning. And some people may tune out, but you start at the beginning and so you can build your case. And then as you go on through the course of an episode, you can lead your listener, as it were, by hand to uh, down a certain path along a certain storyline, which is a luxury you don't get with with radio, where typically people may well tune in halfway through an interview and you have to constantly remind them who you're talking to and what the subject is. What was the the one thing that comes to mind when you talk about these, you know, these habits that you had to unlearn uh, as you start getting into podcasting? Yeah, that's a great question. Really, this the scripting and that sense of of being on and I guess the discipline of radio, uh, you can be more relaxed and more chatty and more interested in anecdote um, with a podcast than I think you can easily be in radio, unless it's really a long-form show. And talk a little bit about your inspiration as you started to think about the, the beginning of your show. Uh, you know, what, what was it that inspired you or to, to make you believe that this is something that you now wanted to, to take on? Yeah, my passion is for solutions. I feel that journalism is in a crisis. It's not just about the mainstream media either being too liberal, 
globalist or too globalist, as its conservative critics have said, or, you know, Fox News being too conservative or talk radio, uh, the likes of Sean Hannity or Rush Limbaugh being too bigoted and too mean spirited. That's not the sole problem. The other problem, and I think it's more pressing, is that we journalists have been raised to believe that our job is to do the who, what, when, where, why of a story, you know, who's involved, what's happening, why it happened, uh, when it happened. But we don't think about now what. We don't think about the solutions. We don't think about, okay, we've got this terrible story that's happened or this big political conflict. How do we make things better? How do we talk to people who may have some constructive ideas to move the debate forward. And so that's where this show was born out of. It was born out of that sense of, hey, you know, can't we have better ways of talking about issues and problems that all of us face? And I'm not just talking about politics, but also personal things like, for instance, you know, personal bankruptcy or um, seeking meaning in your life. And what were some of the shows that you were listening to at the time that was that were inspiring you? Yeah, I think that one of the shows that I really enjoyed listening to was Freakonomics. Okay. Um, I think that they're kind of a, a, a sister show or a cousin show of ours <laughs> because they they, they it, because of its contrarian nature that they talk about economics, which is potentially a really dry subject but important yeah. in a in a contrarian way, in a quirky way. They get you to look at that again, and and I find that show to be very creative and, and really interesting. So that's, that's one show I listen to. I also have always been drawn to StoryCorps, which draws you into the personal lives of, of, of people and has wonderful dignity of the common man or the common woman. And at its core, it's saying our stories, your story, Harry, and my story are just as interesting, and in many cases more interesting, than the stories we constantly are bombarded with on uh, cable television and, and radio. And w- how did you land on the format? Because you, you have a host, Jim, Jim Meigs, am I pronouncing that correctly? <laughs> no, you're not. You messed it up. <laughs> it's, it's, it's Jim Meigs. Okay. And Jim, and Jim is the former editor-in-chief of Popular Mechanics. Yeah. Um, and a personal friend, we, uh, we, we both raised kids in the same town, uh, north of New York City, and, and we became friends through our children. And he has a wonderfully fluid way of thinking, and also very practical, being the former editor-in-chief of Popular Mechanics. And we sort of hit it off whenever we talked about, about politics or, or serious matters. And, and so the show was also born out of a friendship as well as a passion for, for uh, finding new ideas and, and ways to solve things. Was that important for you to have someone that you, could, that, that you had such a friendship with, given that you know, this is something you were probably looking at, to do for, for some time? Yeah, I thought it would be really well. Actually, no, I'm going to back up. Okay, but let's start at the beginning, yeah. and that is when when I when I left ABC, I actually had another show in mind, and that show, which which we have not produced, is called Change My Mind, okay. and Change My Mind was the idea of taking a left versus right debate, mm-hmm. and then ha- having a host who's somewhat in the middle and is persuadable. And 
then having an audience and having the audience vote on what the best idea <laughs> is and who made the best idea. And the whole idea was this sort of celebration of, of changing your mind and of ambivalence, because I think a lot of it's come to things yeah. and our minds aren't made up. And so this show would entertain that pos- that prospect. But from a logistical point of view, I mean, I'm still in, in love with the idea for the show, but it was much more money to make because you'd have to you know, hire a hall, get an audience, mm. have several different people. Um, you'd have to have show bookers. It, so it, it wasn't practical to do. Whereas, whereas um, how do we fix it? Where Jim and I have a different expert guest on each week is not nearly as much of a bear to produce. And how long have you been friends with Jim? Oh, gosh. Probably about 15, 20 years. Yeah. And where north of New York City? Because I grew up in Yonkers. Oh, okay. Well, just north of Yonkers. The one one village north of Yonkers, which is Hastings-on-Hudson, okay. along the Hudson River. I yeah. Know, I know Hastings very well. Good. And so how has been the outreach to guests in the beginning? Were you leaning on professional relationships that you already had? And do you find it easier now that the show is getting more popular? Yeah, we we are finding it easier, but we did rely on professional relationships. And, you know, I, the, I'm an old-fashioned guy, so Rolodex files um, or, the di- or the digital equivalent of yeah. those. Um, so, yeah, we reached out to people we knew already at the beginning. And then we found it was really interesting that even though, you know, we're a pretty small podcast, that some pretty well-known people agreed to come on it. And I think part of that is because if you engage people – with passions and ideas seriously, they want to talk about them. And if you promise them a lively interview, fun time, intellectually, then they'll come on your show, even if the audience isn't that big. So that's one of the things we found out, which is kind of a good discovery. Yeah, you say if you promise them a lively interview, how does one promise a guest that they're going to have a lively interview? I'm sure a lot of podcasters that are listening would, would be interested in your, in your thoughts on that. Well, I guess because we're both longtime journalists and yeah. we read the books that we're that we take this, this the the subject seriously, and then we come at this from a point of view. And the point of view is first that we ask guests to come not only ready to talk about the problem they're discussing, whether it's the economy or politics or something personal, but also to suggest some solutions. They don't have to be a, a, a bucket list or a laundry list. But that that's what makes us different, that we do want to pivot some way, somewhere in the conversation, often halfway through, and ask them for their ideas about how to make things better. And I think that's where we're challenging our guests with questions that they haven't necessarily been asked by other people. And I guess that's part of what I mean by, you know, we'll promise you a, a, a fun or a challenging time. We'll ask you questions that other people don't ask. And I imagine at the end of the interview, um, have you, do you get direct feedback from them that, that in, indicates that this is uh, an interview that's, that was better or, or different than ones that they've had in the past that wasn't so cookie cutter? Yeah, usually, but not always. Yeah. Sometimes, you, 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 sometimes you have guests who are in the middle of a book tour, yeah. and they've done 20 interviews today. Thank you very much. And so you know, we usually ask at the end, we usually say it the end because we've had very few guests that we were disappointed with we'll go hey that was really great it was fun it was really interesting and usually they'll go yeah yeah that you asked some really great questions um that that's that's a pretty frequent response so as the show grows in popularity is your wish list getting longer and do you have some dream guests that you're still looking to snag 
Oh yeah, I'd love to have Bill Gates or Bill and Melinda Gates on. They're they're my absolute number one go to people because I think that that after a life after an half lifetime of being in charge of Microsoft, Bill Gates has just done phenomenal work mm-hmm. with trying to make the world a better place through his foundation. So he would be he would be an absolute dream guest. Another dream guest we did uh, uh, we did have on our on our list became a guest, yeah. and that and that was Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah, who we spent more than an hour with him at the Museum of Natural History in New York, and that was just a real pleasure and a joy. And he was very provocative. Yeah, and one of the things uh, in that interview, that's one of the ones I actually listened to, where you mentioned you had something in common with him that you've both seen Carl Sagan speak. Actually, that was Jim. Oh, that was Jim. Um, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jim, Jim's the nerd on the show. He's the, he's the guy with a, more of a science background than me and, and technical background. And yeah, he, he, was, he saw uh, Carl Sagan as a high school student and Neil deGrasse Tyson went one better and was invited by Carl Sagan <laughs> to visit him. So, <laughs> yeah. So what type of feedback have you been getting uh, from listeners uh, over time? I imagine in the beginning it's hard. You know, All podcasters struggle with trying to get listeners. There's so many, I think the number is 400,000 podcasts in, in iTunes. So there's a lot of noise in this space. So I'm wondering, um, you know, sometimes as podcasters, the only f- feedback we get is from our true super fans. And, and I'm wondering if, how you've seen that increase as the show grows. Yeah, we have been getting more and more um, responses. And, one of the things that has been striking to us and has changed the direction of the show a little bit is people who've told us they really like our friendship mm. and they like that we're polite to each other, even when we disagree. Okay. And Jim, Jim and I do disagree. Jim, Jim's a libertarian. Uh, he calls himself a squishy libertarian <laughs> and I'm, I'm kind of a bleeding heart centrist. I mean, if, if you had to force me, I'm, I'm more, I'm more liberal than Jim. Yeah. And so we do disagree. And we had, we had a really pretty big clash on health care on one of our shows. Um, uh, I favor universal health care and Jim's more of a free market guy. So, yeah, that, that was cool. And what that kind of pushed us to do was to reveal a bit more about ourselves on the podcast and to see the podcast as not just a time to speak policy, but also to, you know, tease each other. Talk yeah. about our friendship yeah. and, and laugh. And I, I, that I love. And I do think that's something that podcasts also can, can bring about is it, you know, they're very personal. Has that been surprising for you coming from your journalism background? Because I, I imagine you're taught in journalism school, you know, just deliver the facts and, and, you know, in, in terms of your, your presentation, but with podcasts, I mean, people get to know everything about you the longer you're on. Like, People know my dog's name. People know my wife's name. People know where I live, what my hobbies are. <laughs> and I think because of the casual nature of conversations, you know, some, some stuff just comes out in conversations. And I'm wondering if that's been surprising for you. Yes, yes, yes. All of the above. <laughs> I, I agree with everything you just said. Um, it has been surprising because I did come from a pretty strict discipline. Yeah. And, and, but are, are you comfortable moving with that or, or did you fight it at first? I think... I'm more comfortable with that than Jim is. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm more of a show off. I'm more more of the uh, the 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 ringmaster in the tent. Um, Jim's more, I think, thoughtful at, t- in t- mm-hmm. at times than I am, and yeah, a little bit more private. 
Have you found yourself to be now the, uh, the, the cheerleader for podcasts, either in your family or in your close circle of friends? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that's really been interesting to me, Harry, I mean, I'm an older guy and started, you know, uh, in, in journalism in the 70s. And so most of my friends are older. And when I first started doing podcasting a couple of years ago, my kids' friends, uh, my daughter is 31, our son is 27, they, you know, they were on board. You didn't have to explain mm -hmm. to them what a podcast was. And they already listened to a bunch of podcasts. Um, people of my age, you did have to explain what a podcast was. Yeah. That's changed. Um, yes, I was proselytizing for podcasts, but now it's a much it's much more familiar ground for older people. I think there's been true growth um, among you know people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s who are now listening to podcasts in a way they weren't a few years ago. Do you still find uh, it challenging when you have to? tell people about the show who who have yet to listen to their first podcast yeah i do and sometimes i you know <laughs> will will take their phone especially if it's an apple and say hey have you seen this icon <laughs> yeah. that purple icon yeah that's the podcast icon all you have to do and i kind of show them i go tap in how do we fix it? And you tap it in and there it is. And it comes right up and it's the spanner in the microphone, uh, icon. So, um, can you talk a little bit about, you, you know, your experience? You said you, you were in journal in, in journalism for, is it 30 years? You said, yeah, yeah. More than 30 years. Yeah. And so, you know, without going into too many details, because that could probably be a whole nother podcast episode. Are, are there are there some specific stories that you covered that still that you still remember to this very day? Oh yeah, yeah. My favorite story that I ever covered was the fall of the Berlin Wall in oh, wow. November of of nineteen eighty nine, and I was covering a debate at the United Nations Security Council when we first got word that it looked like. The wall might be opening. And I called uh, the news editor who was on the news desk at the time at ABC News Radio and said, I want to go. You know, <laughs> send me. Yeah. Send me to, send me to Berlin. And because it was so fresh and they hadn't really, you know, had their news meeting or whatever, they went, okay. And literally a few hours later, I was on the plane wow. in London the following morning, uh, in, in, in Berlin the following morning after connecting through London. And I spent two weeks covering the most extraordinary combination of a history-changing event and a street party. Mm. Uh, it was so exciting because we knew when the Berlin Wall came down that the most visible symbol of the Cold War uh, had collapsed and the world was going to be a different place and it was also a time of tremendous hope and excitement that with the collapse of East Germany, that democracy would spread into other parts of Eastern Europe and that it would improve the lives of, of a huge number of people. So it was a very exciting time, a great story. And you know, very often when you're covering a story as a journalist, it's only years later that you realize, hey, that was really a pivotal, important moment. Yeah. But with this, we knew right there, right then, and, and that, that it was just a huge, exciting moment. It's, it's an interesting experience, um, not having 
been through it as a journalist, but actually living through historical moments like nine eleven, for example, I was in New York City. I was, you know, a, right. I was. I lived in East Village. I literally saw them from the roof of my building come down. So, <laughs> I, I think there's something about pivotal moments like that that you realize that you're you're watching history, and I think um, it takes a while for it to sink in. But I think we have to appreciate those those moments because they don't really come along that that often. Unless you're a yeah, journalist, no, I unless, unless maybe you're a journalist, and you, you, see, you, you do tend to have opportunities to see more of them. No, we are very blessed in great moments of importance to be able to appreciate them more, perhaps, than people who are going about their daily lives. Um, I was also in New York City on, on 9-11 and um, covered the aftermath mm -hmm. uh, of that for, for a couple of weeks as a street reporter. And that was a, a, a very moving and also rewarding experience because we I mentioned earlier Harry that that I'd lived outside New York in Hastings yeah. and had I never had a full appreciation for New York City until experiencing the extraordinary strong vibrant powerful and compassionate response that the city gave to the that awful day yeah. um, it really brought the city together and strengthened the city as opposed to weakened it. And and that was that was a remarkable thing to witness. What was it like growing up in Hastings? I didn't grow up in Hastings. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I was I lived in Hastings for twenty nearly about twenty years where we raised our kids. But um, I, I met um, my wife through work, and I lived in Britain for twenty years. Okay. I'm a little bit half and half. Yeah. My parents are, are British, and um, I married. An American woman, Judy from from California, and um, our kids are American, but my two sisters are English, and so uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time in in different places. That's that's that has to have given you a unique perspective <laughs> in terms of cultures. You know, haven't been able to to experience both, right? Yeah, and I think it's a big reason why I react so strongly against people who hold very dogmatic views, whether they're rigidly conservative or rigidly left, um, because I've always felt myself to be a little bit between two countries. You know, there's always a bit of England in me, and mm -hmm. uh, I identify much more as an American than a Brit, but still, you know, having lived in, in Britain for so long and having uh, British parents, uh, yeah, it does give you that sense of, hey, I wonder what the, they're, they're thinking about over there. You know, I wonder if we were missing out on some of their ideas about life. When did you know that you wanted to be a journalist? <laughs> I have a, Harry, I have a tape recording of myself <laughs> at the age of nine doing a newscast nice. that I, that I, that I made up. So uh, on my father's tape recorder. So yeah, I mean, that was, that was what I wanted to do from a really early age. Do you still have that? Uh, somewhere, yes, I do. I should dig it out, yeah, shouldn't I? Dig it out, and I'll put it in the show now. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, there's a thought. No, I think it's. I, I mean, it, they ask kids all the time, right? When you're young, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the fact that you were doing it at nine means you had inclinations of something, and and you actually ended up probably doing what you wanted to do since you were a young age. So it's it's interesting to know that at that at that age you were clear to an extent. Yeah. Yeah, no, to an extent. I also wanted to be a disc jockey, too, which okay. is probably why I ended up in radio as opposed to another medium. 
I was always ex- really loved Top 40 radio when I was a little kid. That those DJs were so cool and exciting. Yeah. So as so when you 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 did your first newscast at nine, <laughs> so as, as you as you were growing up, I know you know before the internet, before cable, before all the the million channels, you know we only had ABC, CBS, and um, NBC and, and, and NBC. So you know there's not a lot of choices. So how mm-hmm. important were journalists and newscasters to you growing up, and is, was that a nightly ritual as well in your household? Yeah, they they were, and, and and it was a nightly ritual, and I think this happens to most young journalists and probably young podcasters that that you latch on to somebody who you really admire and you start by copying them. Mm. You take some of their vocal tics or their style of writing and deconstruct it and and kind of analyze what you like about what they're doing, and then make your version of it. Which I think is great. I mean, I actually think that if anybody's listening to this and says, hey, you know, I want to be a podcaster. How do I start? I think that's one of the first things to do is to listen to people who you who you connect with, whatever field it is, whether it's comedy or drama or journalism or, or something else, and analyze what they're doing and, and start by copying them. And then, you know, copy several people and and. I did that a lot in my early career. I never actually sounded anything like as good as the people I copied. <laughs> and I'm sure they never recognized their voice and yeah. what I was trying to do. But And it wasn't mimicking our, what they were doing. It was more you know, just really learning from them and taking those lessons seriously. Yeah. Uh, do any specific journalists stand out? Yeah, that? Charles Osgood. Yeah. Charles Osgood. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful storyteller. Um, gosh, trying to think who else. Um, uh, some of the uh, there was a there's a a colleague of mine. I ended up working with him, but he was on the air way before I was. A guy called Bob Hart, who was a newscaster, yeah. who I really I really liked his combination of warmth and authority. And you know, in news, I think that's. It's kind of important to, to uh, establish that you're credible, but that also you have a voice that's empathetic or warm enough that when you tell a story or you, uh, a news story, that, that people are more likely to believe you and think that it's coming from someone who's honest and, uh, and trustworthy. What are, uh, what are some films that you, that you think have, have gotten it right in terms of portraying uh, journalism or or the news? God, that's such a good question. I'm going to give you such a crappy answer <laughs> because because I really need time to think about this, Harry. I wasn't anticipating <laughs> this one, um, uh, which is why you're such a good interviewer. Um, I think that that network news yeah. was a good one. Um, there was a neat movie, and I don't, I can't remember the name of it, but there was a movie about. Um, no, I can't remember the name of it. But it, was, it was a movie. It was a movie about Julian Assange, and okay. I think it was on Netflix. And I thought that caught the chaos and fog of news, um, the, because you know it, it isn't. I mean, I think that that people outside of the news business probably think that it's much cleaner and and more directed, and that we know exactly what kind of story we're going to get when we when we begin. 
our process of of interviewing people um, than it than it is, and and it's also often a story gets buried on a busy news day would get a great deal more attention on a less busy day, and so the way that everything turns out is confusing. And a lot of that's because of, of deadlines, of time, that, mm. that, that journalists work extremely quickly. And, and it's always excited and amazed me that you can read about something in a really pretty well-formed way that only happened a couple of hours before. Mm. Um, you know, and, and, but that, that's, I, mean, I, I love that phrase that, that, um, that journalism is history's first draft. Wow. Um, that that reporting that stories um, that are reported quickly uh, and often you know that it's their true import is not decided is not known right away yeah. and and I think that that so many of the mistakes that journalists are criticized for are because things are done so darn fast so quickly that often there's not time to check not necessarily check on on the basic facts but check on the import of what you're doing and and make sure that the story really is fair and balanced and and has comes from a good perspective did you ever get a chance to see hbo's the newsroom yeah yeah i did i don't think that's very realistic i think it's a lot of fun yeah uh that, that, that was a recent, a recent favorite of mine as well yeah, yeah, I enjoyed it too. It was more like a guilty pleasure, though, than something <laughs> where I felt that they were really doing an accurate representation yeah. of a TV newsroom. Um, one of your episodes uh, was actually titled "Journalism in Crisis," and uh, so I'm yeah. wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, why you chose that and and what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, that show was with Aaron Pilhofer, who's a really interesting guy. He's the former. Uh, top executive at the New York Times, then went to The Guardian and is now at Temple University in Philadelphia. And Aaron has a real passion and interest in digital journalism and has, in a forthright and really kind of brave way, looked at how journalism, the journalistic model, especially in newspapers, has been utterly disrupted by the rise of the Internet mm -hmm. and, and digital media. And of course, I mean, I'm sure you're aware of this, but but the problem for many, many newspapers is that for years, uh, I'm thinking I'm in Connecticut right now. The, the Hartford Current is a great example. That's a newspaper that went daily, I believe, in the late 18th century. Mm -hmm. So it's been around for you know more than 200 years. And and the Current was by far and away the most respected newspaper in Connecticut. It had a big local market, made tons of money from two sources. Um, newspaper subscriptions and classified advertising. And then Craigslist came along yeah. and took a tremendous amount of advertising money away from, from, from the Hartford Current. And I'm just using that as an example and other newspapers. So their, their revenue stream from, from local classified advertising may not almost dried up. And then with the rise of, of digital media and other and uh, and the fact that so much information doesn't have to be paid for to to view on the internet that their subscriber base also sharply declined and so that really put newspapers into a into a terrific um, uh, crisis so that's that's the journalism in crisis bit but then we talked with Aaron Pilhofer about okay how do journalists regroup 
And one of the things he talked about was solutions journalism, which is part of what we're doing, which is that if you want to if you want to convince skeptical readers or skeptical listeners that you really are trying to get at the truth and that you have something that's important to say, then concentrate on or look at solutions as a vital part of your coverage. Um, at the, the now what that was mentioning a little while ago that, OK, now, you know, now we've got a crisis in, say, you know, healthcare. What do we do about it? What are some creative solutions that go beyond the shouting on the left and the right? That's just one example. Um, so there's that part of it. There's a solutions journalism part. But there's also something that, that Aaron has explored about connecting with your viewers and listeners, inviting their feedback, mm -hmm. telling them what your sources are. The digital media enables you to do that. You can link to other sources and you can kind of lift the curtain a little bit on the craft of journalism and, and invite readers to, to uh, give you suggestions. So having a closer connection with readers and, and, and viewers and listeners and being more concerned about how stories impact their lives and how potentially to have a discussion on making things better. I think those are all important answers to the question of where do we go from here in dealing with the crisis in journalism. It sounds a lot like guidance that would behoove a lot of podcasters. <laughs> and, and the fact that you said, look at solutions and your show's titled, how do we fix it? Means, it seems like you've, you've taken that to heart in terms of how you're structuring your show. Yeah, we certainly try to. The other thing we do, and, and this is a criticism I have of some podcasts, that they're too long. And, and there's, there's no, there are no hard and fast rules about podcasts. Um, and, and clearly, there are some great podcasts out there. And of course, the, the greatest example I know is Dan Carlin yeah. and Hardcore History, yeah. where you know, you, it's, a four, it's a four and a half hour episode and it's absolutely riveting. Uh, and you're trying to find excuses of how you can continue listening. <laughs> and, and, um, and then the other flip side of that are Minion Fogarty's network of quick and dirty tips of five minutes. <laughs> there you go. Five minutes. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, the most successful new uh, podcast this year probably is The Daily, the New York Times podcast, which is very often, you know, 15, 16 minutes in, in duration, although they have been creeping up a little longer recently. But um, I think that, that a lot of podcasts are, are too long and could do with a little bit of, of, of editing. So that's, a, that's something we try and do as well. And maybe that's because of my uh, background in journalism, where I don't actually have a very good attention span. And I'm aware that perhaps <laughs> some listeners don't either. One of the formats that you've introduced into your show is uh, the Fix It Shorts. Uh, can you talk a little bit about why you added that into the mix? Yeah, uh, Fix It Shorts are episodes that are 15 minutes or less. And the idea is to try and fit in with the lifestyles of people who listen to podcasts. Okay. Most of us are doing, have busy lives. And we thought that, that perhaps we would grow our audience and community by offering shows that fit in with people who, for instance, have a short commute or they're, you know, they're, they're rushing between one thing and another and they have time for a 15 minute podcast but they don't have time for a 40-minute podcast. I've often heard people who like podcasts go, ooh, that shows a bit of a heavy lift. It's 40 minutes. <laughs> and that, that's where part of that came from was, okay, um, what are you doing when you listen to a podcast? You're walking the dog. Yeah. 
Uh, maybe you're driving, you know, you're driving home after driving your kids to school, and you don't have 40 minutes, but you might have 20 or 15. I'm of two minds of that sometimes because I know you know we're, we live in a in a in a time of uh, you know binging Netflix episodes and and everything's on demand. So I think for me personally, if it, if I see an episode as an hour, you know, I listen as much as I can, and then I pause it and then I just pick it up whenever I, I have time to, to continue it. But I, I think maybe there's an aspect of, of listenership that likes the idea of completing an episode in a specific period of time, and usually that's going to be like a commute or a gym workout. Yeah, Harry, there's some of us who really like to finish the book. Yeah, <laughs> we, we, yeah we don't feel like we're, we're, we've properly engaged in something unless we've finished it, yeah. as opposed to dipping in and out. And what I love about that is that it's clear when on your feed because you can say you can sort of pick oh I want I want the I want the fifteen minute snack this time as opposed to the you know the thirty forty five minute interview and people can clearly see it's a, oh this is a short so I like I like that and, and that's good guidance for for the listener like if if you do have a way to mix it up clearly identify it in your feed so that your fans and your listeners can say oh this is something that I could just pop in and pop out of yeah thanks I I, I think that yeah they they've had good response. So uh, as you know, you're up to episode 121. So what what keeps you motivated to keep recording the episodes with Jim and, and what gets you excited uh, as you look forward? We've learned so much from our guests. We've been really lucky to have such great guests that the thing that motivates me the most is the prospect of engaging with people who are really interesting and who I learn things from. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, I really enjoy my friendship with Jim. I like seeing him every week. So those are those those are two reasons. And they're just they're always there's always stuff to talk about that I find really interesting. And right now we're living in a in a very important time with Donald Trump as president, and uh, I'm among his critics and feel that the country is in a certain amount of crisis, even though. The economy is pretty strong right now, so the lives of many people are actually better. Uh, but I think that it's it's a time when people are perhaps taking politics more seriously than they than they have done for some time, and so that's another motivating factor. It's not to tell people what to think, but I think that it's it's just a good time to be out there looking for different ways of trying to do things. It's really it is an interesting time, uh, Richard, and I and I think I, I hate to say that that ha this had to happen, but this presidency is stimulating a whole slew of activities, marches, conversations, mm -hmm. um, you know, bringing things out of the woodwork that we thought were gone, and it's just so many things happening right now, and maybe you know history you know, we'll show whether, you know, this was a good thing or a bad thing. But I, the fact that we were having these conversations that we might not uh, otherwise have had if it had been a, a different outcome, I think in some way, um, some small aspect, I think is a good thing that you're sort of shaking these, these, these things out of the, out of the, out of the woodwork. I think, I think you're right. And I think that our democracy is, is more fired up now than it yeah. was. And part of it is, in my view, at least, Donald Trump is testing the guardrails of our democracy. Mm. He's he's shaking things up, and we'll see just how strong our Constitution is, and how strong our judicial system is, how strong our Congress is, and where there's some areas that really need improvement as, as a result of being tested in this way. 
because love him or hate him, he's a very unpredictable guy. Yeah. May we live in interesting times indeed. <laughs> yeah. A yeah, uh, couple, exactly. couple of questions as we head into the home stretch. What have you changed your mind about recently? Um, I have changed my mind about nuclear power. Okay. As the result of a, sh of a show we did with a guy called Mike and Michael Schellenberger. Michael Schellenberger is the author of the Eco-Modernist Manifesto, and he's a passionate environmentalist, but he also argues with equal passion that, that nuclear power has been vilified by its opponents, and that it needs to be part of our energy future because it can produce carbon-free energy safer and less polluting, actually zero pollution in terms of air than, than I'd realized before. So that was interesting. I've been much more skeptical. Now I'm moderately enthusiastic about nuclear power. So that was a real change for me. Another guest who really changed my mind was... Uh, <laughs> I'm struggling with his name, and it's yeah. because it's a it's an Islamic name that I'm not, I'm not for. It's it's uh, Majid Dawaz, okay. and he runs a group called Quillian, and he is a former Islamist radical okay. who came out of prison after being convicted of terrorist-related offenses, and became very passionate about changing his mind and promoting democracy among his fellow Muslims. And it woke me to the idea that there's a very strong movement that is underreported among uh, Muslims to, uh, to push back against more extreme elements. And uh, that was kind of exciting to me and eye-opening. Isn't that a great feeling when that happens, when you have these stimulating conversations on your podcast? Yeah, it really is. It's really cool. Um, I, th I think another thing that's kind of changed my mind is Jim has opened me much more to the marvels of science, which is not, I'm not a science guy. Yeah. I'm a fuzzy humanist. <laughs> and uh, he, and, and he, he uh, just sitting next to him and seeing his fascination and, and passion for science has is, is also, you know, changed my perspective on that. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. Right. We'll make sure we link up to those two episodes in the show notes as well. Uh, what is the one most misunderstood thing about you? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, oh, I know what it is. Among my close friends, they probably think that I'm more judgmental than I think myself to be. And that's partially because my worst response to most things is in when, things that surprise me. My worst response is in the first 15 to 30 seconds. Okay. If I could take back those, you know, quick responses, those snap judgments yeah. I have, um, uh, that would be a good thing. So I want to ask you a question. Sure. Yeah. Do you have any ideas for things we should do on our show? And is there anything about our show that you go, you know what? Um, I don't think they're doing that very well. Uh, no, I mean, uh, I love the production value. I mean, I, I love the little, I love the intro music. I love things that add personality to a podcast. And I love when hosts open up uh, because, uh, I mean, we've talked about it. There's so many podcasts out there. And I think people come back for the personality. I mean, you're going to see Neil deGrasse Tyson on, you know, 50 other podcasts, right? But true, the, the fact true. the fact that you can come and, or, or Jim can come with his perspective and, and see what connects and see what tidbit you can get out of your guests that another 
show couldn't. And, and, and I think your regular listeners will keep coming back because they want to hear your perspective. They love the banter between you. And that's a unique chemistry that no other show has, even if you get, even if you interview the same 10 guests that have been on other shows, I think. So to the, to the fact, I would just keep at it, you know, keep adding this quirkiness, keep adding the banter, keep, keep disagreeing every now and then. And keep, you know, pushing your guests, you know, to, to get out of their comfort zone as well. Cause you, you, you do have these people that are on these book tours and they're just giving you the stock answers. So a lot of times, you know, just have a couple questions in the bag that you're just like, okay, you're going to throw them off track a little bit. And as we all know, it's all edited in post. So it does, they don't have to get it right. And if they don't have an answer that makes sense or, or they stumble a bit, you can always fix that. But I think to the extent that you can keep, keep looking for ways to keep yourself and you know engage and so that you never get tired because the minute we as hosts start to get bored you know it's going to be reflected in in our shows yeah that that that's that's great advice um thank you for that any any ideas around guests we should have um or idea or subjects that you that have fire you up that you'd like to hear more about yeah, how do, I mean, it, with with that with the name of the show, I mean, there's so many different places you can go, um, and maybe maybe theme. I don't know if you've actually thought about themes, but maybe you know, go go deep on a on a topic for you know four or five episodes, and just see if you can d- cover different aspects of a certain theme. Um, you know, maybe augmented reality or something like that. You know, that's something that's top of mind for a lot of people, you know, with the release of the new iPhone and just look at it from a pro perspective, from a con perspective, someone, some talk to a Luddite, talk to someone, you know, at Apple and just kind of, kind of paint the whole picture. So you can use the, how do we fix it? And, and just really look at it from all the different angles, uh, of a subject. I think that might be interesting. Nice. Nice. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, we, we're thinking of doing more on the future of tech. Yeah. So uh, that's that's good. Uh, driver, dr- driverless cars are top of mind for. Yeah, life. we did one on driver. We did one on driverless cars. A really really provocative show with a guy called Eric Alderman, okay. who's the editor in chief of Car and Driver, oh. who came out passionately against driverless cars <laughs> and made some some good arguments of, of, uh, on, on why perhaps. The future of driverless cars is a little more distant than some of us are uh, are thinking. And with uh, with Jim's background, the future of print magazines, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, Richard, thanks so much for um, for for reaching out to me at Podcast Movement. I know that we had you know run into each other, and I'm glad uh, mm-hmm. you know I, I see and meet so many folks, and and I, I definitely look for opportunities to um, build a relationship. And and I knew that once we reconnected, that I was going to have you on the show. So I'm glad you've made time to come on. I love that, and we got to find a way to get you on our show. And and thanks for having me on Podcast Junkies. I love what you're doing, and thanks for being such a wise and creative cheerleader for our business, for our movement, for uh, the growth of podcasting. Yeah, it's, it's just fascinating because every single podcast host has their own personality. And it's just been really fascinating for me to build friendships as well. And that's why I do the, the video chat. So just to, to build that connection a bit more, just every opportunity I have um, to, to find out. There's so many. There's no way I could talk to every single podcast host. I would have to have a daily show. Um, but I just love building the, you know, the one-on-one connections. I think that's more important. That's great. Great. Well, thank you. And uh, I hope we'll, we'll have you on our show too, I so would, that, uh, I would love that we find out more about what you've learned from podcasting and how that can help make the world a better place. I would be honored to come on the show. 
So for the listeners, where's the best place for folks to track you down? Well, there are a whole bunch of places. You can go to go, go to iTunes, and I guess that's what we like because if you can leave a, a review yeah. um, and give give us a five star rating, please, um, it, and and uh, and subscribe. That's a great way to do it. Uh, we just started. We just started showing up on NPR One. Oh, nice. uh, you can find how do we fix it on NPR One, um, and we're on Stitcher. We're on most of the podcast platforms. Well, thanks again for your time, Richard, and I uh, hope you have a fantastic day. Yeah, thank you. And also, oh, there's one more way to find us, and that's at our website, howdowefixit.me.me. Yes. Okay. Yeah, great. So thanks again to Richard for coming on the show. It's always appreciated when my guests take time out of their busy days to spend some time with me so that you can get to know them a little bit better. We are a proud member of podcastica.com. Intro and outro music composed by Cedar and Soil. Check them out at cedarsoil.com. Don't forget to support our episode sponsor, Podbean. Head on over to podbean.com slash podcast junkies and reach out to me if you need help with the setup once you've enrolled in their awesome hosting. The retention hashtag for this week is fixitrichard, F-I-X-I-T, Richard. That's the hashtag. You can tag Richard and the Fix It Show at Fix It Show. That's the handle, Fix It Show. And uh, Richard is at Davies Now, D-A-V-I-E-S Now. And we are, of course, at podcast underscore junkies. Tune in next week for my conversation with Colleen Mullen, host of Coaching Through Chaos and Shrink to Shrink. We're going to have a lot of fun with that one, a lot of laughs. Don't forget to sign up to our newsletter to receive my weekly episode updates. The easiest way to do this is head on over to podcastjunkies.com slash eight tools and download our free PDF of the eight tools I've used to launch Podcast Junkies and it's been updated for 2017. If you're already a member of the, of the newsletter Posse, then head on over to podcastjunkies.com slash iTunes and leave us that five-star review you've been longing to do. You just haven't gotten around to it. I get it. You're busy. So thanks for everything you do to support the show. I know we're living in some really crazy times right now. So maybe this week's additional ask is to tell someone that you love them, that you haven't spoken to in a while. Uh, we could all use a little bit more of that. Have a safe and fantastic week, and I'll see you guys next week.